It's Asian American and Pacific Islander Month. And for the next few weeks, we at The Skim will be highlighting the contributions and celebrating the cultures of this vast group that includes people of East, Southeast, and South Asian descent. And we thought we'd kick off the month by talking about one of our favorite topics, TV and movies. For a long time, the Asian experience in America was underrepresented, misrepresented, and completely ignored in television and film. But in recent years, that started to change. And that means more jobs for Asian-American actors, writers, producers, and directors. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about the way Asian-Americans have been portrayed on television. We caught up a few culture critics to get their perspectives on the evolution of Asian-Americans on screen. Where did we come from? And with the success of shows like Netflix's Never Have I Ever and movies like Crazy Rich Asians, where are we heading? For a long time, Asian characters in American movies and on television were largely informed by and fed into American racism, fears, and misconceptions about Asian people. Asian American portrayals in Hollywood were often offensive and one-dimensional. And even when they did have some depth, the characters usually fed into stereotypes. Asian male characters were kung fu masters, laborers, or servants, like the character Hop Singh on the Western Bonanza. He was the Cartwright's trusted cook. Hey, Hop Singh, is this what you do in your day off? Uh, Missy and they teach Hop Singh make a fairly fine chinese dish, Hong Kong mulligan. Bye-bye, <laughs> <laughs> you know Hop, come restaurant no more. <laughs> when the characters weren't the butt of the joke, They were usually demure, quiet, and wise, or untrustworthy and conniving, depending on the stereotype the production was trying to play into. Asian women characters were often prostitutes or domineering dragging ladies. And the characters were painted with broad cultural strokes. East and Southeast Asian characters were often lumped together as Chinese. Occasionally, you would see a character who was supposed to be South Asian, but came off as vaguely Indian or Middle Eastern. And a lot of the times, these characters weren't even played by Asian actors. Like Mickey Rooney as Mr. Yunioshi in 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's. White people playing Asian characters is called yellow face. And white actors would often use makeup and prosthetics to appear more quote-unquote Asian. You know, like blackface. In the 30s, there was a Swedish actor named Warner Olin who made a whole career of playing Asian characters in yellowface. German actress Louise Rayner won an Academy Award for her yellowface role in the 1937 movie The Good Earth. Katharine Hepburn, Marlon Brando, Fred Astaire, John Wayne, and a lot of other big old Hollywood names, they all did yellowface. White actor Peter Sellers donned brownface to play an Indian character in the 1960s movie The Party. Up until the 40s, there were laws that basically limited Asian immigration to the states. These laws also made it really hard for Asian immigrants to integrate into American culture and for Asian actors to even start opposite of white actors. Studios used that as an excuse to justify and continue using yellowface. But that, of course, doesn't explain why the practice was used for so long after those laws were repealed or why Emma Stone, Scarlett Johansson, and Tilda Swinton have all done some form of yellowface in the decades after. The point is, for a long time, there weren't many Asian characters on television or in movies. And when you did see them, there wasn't much nuance. I did not uh, get your name. Miss Lily. Your full name. 
known as China Lily. A perfect description of your beauty. In 1951, Chinese-American actress Anna Mae Wong became the first Asian-American to star in a TV series. It was a mystery crime-solving show called The Gallery of Madame Lu Song. But it was short-lived. It was canceled after only 10 episodes. The clip you're hearing is of Anna Mae Wong, but it's from another film she did called Island of Lost Men. The Gallery of Madame Lu Song was lost when the network it was on went defunct. There's a rumor that all the records and tapes were dumped in the New York Bay. In the 60s, George Takei famously played Hikaru Sulu in the original series of Star Trek. No escape for you. You either leave this bar bloodied or with my blood on your swords. The first sitcom to star an Asian American was a 1970s show called Mr. T and Tina. It was a Welcome Back Carter spinoff starring Pat Morita. You know, Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. He played a Japanese inventor who moves his family from Japan to Chicago. And he hires Tina, a white governess, to take care of his kid. Mr. T and Tina. I don't care about the body temperature of governess. Laughter ensues, and the show only lasted five episodes. In the 80s, Pat Morita took another shot at it with the two-season police procedural called O'Hara. Hanna-Barbera had a one-season animated series about an Asian-American family called The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan. Don't just stand there. Do something. Yeah, get us down. Get us up. Get us out. It was kind of like an Asian Scooby-Doo. There were a handful of other unsuccessful shows with Asian-American leads in the 80s, and a few that did well with Asian-American series regulars. But for the most part, for a long time, Roles for Asian-American actors were few and far between. When you're an Asian-American entertainment journalist, the question of when did you first see yourself on television actually comes up a lot. That's Lakshmi Gandhi. She's a freelancer who writes for publications like NBC News and The Buddhist Review. I really can't remember the first time I saw an Indian or other South Asian-American on scripted TV. But I think the first time I saw an Asian-American sitcom was in the 90s when Margaret Cho had her show, All-American Girl. Stop worrying. Margaret's a good girl. This is so terrible. I want her to respect tradition and the old ways. No, it's not so terrible. She's just growing up in a very different culture than we did. It's not so easy. It was cool because it featured a multi-generational, multilingual immigrant household and... That was very much like my household, so I could definitely relate to that. But that was also very short-lived. In 1994, comedian Margaret Cho starred in a sitcom about a Korean-American family living in San Francisco. Margaret Cho's character was a first-generation 20-something whose American sensibilities were often at odds with her more traditional immigrant parents. And for a lot of Asian-Americans, Cho's role on the show was the first somewhat relatable Asian-American character they remember seeing on television. But the show was widely criticized for playing into stereotypes. Margaret Cho says she didn't have any creative control and was told by the network to, among other things, lose weight. When the show was canceled after one season, she fell into a depression sparked in part by all the criticism and network pressure. And it was a while before there was another sitcom starring an Asian-American family. In the meantime, there were, however, more Asian-American characters on television, but rarely in leading roles. 
seeing the character Trini, the Yellow Ranger and Power Rangers kind of in that first iteration. I mean, her character wasn't like specifically like Asian American in terms of the storytelling and how her story came about. But just seeing her, I'm like, oh, okay, there's like an Asian Power Ranger, Asian superhero. That's Natasha Jung. She runs a media platform called the Cold Tea Collective that focuses on stories from the Asian diaspora. When I asked Natasha about some of the Asian TV characters she remembers seeing growing up, she said the yellow Power Ranger, which is funny and maybe true for a lot of people who grew up in the 90s. But it does illustrate a kind of racial diversity we see on television. I think up until more recently, there's been a practice of tokenism. Like we have like white, black, brown character just to, you know, hit all the check boxes and stuff. Kind of similar to, you know, like the really old school Power Rangers did back in the day. Having an ensemble cast that ticks all the racial diversity boxes or having one person of color, sometimes two if the show was really progressive, was popular for a long time. And it still happens on TV a lot now. Back in the 90s, the medical drama ER introduced the character Dr. Deb Chin, who was played by actress Ming-Na Wen. And they later added a South Asian character, Lakshmi again. I also do remember being so intrigued when ER introduced Parminder Nagra's character, Neela, to the cast in the early 2000s. You don't have to be that smart to be a good doctor. You just have to be thorough, systematic, and meticulous. I'm, I'm trying. Not hard enough. I'd always wondered why there hadn't been any South Asian American doctors on shows like ER. That's like a very... Indian uncle joke to make, but I'm like, why weren't there any Indian doctors? There's so many of us. And I definitely took notice when the character turned out to be a pretty memorable part of the shows, which was really, really great. Lucy Liu portrayed the character Ling Wu on the show Ally McBeal. The character definitely had nuance, but it did play into some old TV tropes about Asian women. In the 2000s, we started to see even more Asian characters on television, but still a part of a majority white cast from Law & Order to Battlestar Galactica, and even Gilmore Girls. Growing up, a big standout for me was Lane Kim from the Gilmore Girls. That's Sharon Kwan. She's a psychotherapist and social worker who writes about mental health, identity, and pop culture. The character Lane Kim she just mentioned was played by actress Keiko Agena. I feel like she was basically me, like the story of my life. I am Korean-American as well. My parents are very religious. My dad is a pastor. And so I really resonated with Lane and her relationship with Rory because growing up, my best friend was also a white girl with a single mom. And so I feel like it really captured our dynamic. When are you going to let your parents know that you listen to the evil rock music? You're an American teenager, for God's sake. Rory, if my parents don't get upset over the obscene portion size of American food, I seriously doubt I'm going to make any inroads with Eminem. But it also really shed light to the stereotype of Asians only being portrayed as the best friend. For a lot of this episode, we've been focusing on East Asian characters because there weren't a lot of roles for South Asians. I mean, comedian Hari Kondabolu, who we talked to on this show, made a whole documentary about how Apu from The Simpsons was the only Indian character on television for years. But that started to change. Lakshmi again. Around 2009, when it felt like every single sitcom had an Indian American character in its cast, there was The Office, there was Community, there was Parks and recreation, there was Big Bang Theory. So it felt really normal to see South Asian faces when you turned on the TV. But 2009 was not that long ago, especially when compared to the long history of American television. 
By the time the show Glee premiered, also in 2009, the Asian sidekick or Asian friend trope was so well known, it was a joke on that show. Natasha again. Glee was also on when I was in high school and seeing two Asian characters, Tina Cohen Chang and Mike Chang was interesting to see, but in a different way. If you recall the show, Mike Chang was actually never really given lines to say. And he was also actually directly referred to as the other Asian in that high school or that friend group. All right, everybody, listen up. When you hear your name called, cross over to my side of this black shiny thing. That's called a piano, Sue. Santana. Wheels. Gay kid. Come on, move it. Asian. Other Asian. Aretha. And Shaft. See, Will, I don't want to participate in a group that ignores the needs of minority students. You have got to be kidding me. Oh, I wouldn't kid about this, Will. And maybe that's your problem. Bigotry is no laughing matter. But looking back, it's just like, ah, oh, ha, ha. I probably thought, oh, that's funny and that's hilarious. But looking at it now, it's just like, oh my gosh, like that is a very direct erasure of who these characters are or who Asian American teens are and that you see in your high schools. It's not saying that something that I directly internalized, but I'm sure that a lot of other folks, you know, growing up in that era or even just rewatching it now, it just it makes you stop and think quite a bit. It's not wrong or offensive to feature an Asian-American character on a majority white show. These characters, of course, can also be great and nuanced, like Sandra Oh's character Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy. Actor Daniel Day Kim challenged stereotypes about Asian men on screen and who gets to be the quote-unquote eye candy with his role on Lost. And as Sharon Kwan pointed out, there are some Asian-Americans who can relate to the experience of navigating a mostly white world or being the only Asian-American, or being mistaken for the other Asian person in the group. These portrayals do speak to an experience, but it's not the only experience for Asian-Americans. And a lot of people think TV should reflect that. Shows like The Mindy Project, starring Mindy Kaling, or even The Walking Dead, did center Asian characters. Netflix briefly had a show called Marco Polo that was about the Mongol Empire that featured a majority Asian cast. But it wasn't until Fresh Off the Boat premiered in 2015 that we got another sitcom about an Asian family. And it was the first time since All American Girl premiered in the 90s. Fresh Off the Boat is instrumental in my feeling seen and feeling represented in media. Similar to the character Eddie, which is, of course, based on the real-life person, Eddie Huang himself. I saw a lot of myself in him, mostly because I grew up around the same time as him. Just growing up around those same things because, it, you know, it's, it's based in the 90s, thinking about my childhood and the conversations that I had with my parents and just kind of like the fun little things that you would see, like the family characters and the family dynamics are having. Just kind of seeing that on, on television, it just makes you feel really seen. And it also almost normalizes, for me personally, at least, the kind of household that I grew up in. Like, oh, it wasn't just me. Or maybe now I understand a little bit more about how perhaps like others like, across the Asian diaspora have grown up. There's this very specific episode that shows how Eddie's family doesn't use a dishwasher. And then one of the kids actually goes to a friend's house where they actually use a dishwasher to wash dishes as opposed to using it for storage. I don't get it. Why would you put dirty plates in the drying rack? That's just it, Eddie. It's not a drying rack. It's a dishwasher. You mean the thing we put our dishes in after we wash them in the sink? The drying rack. Darn it, Edwin. That's what I'm telling you. It's a machine that washes the dishes for you. With jets of water that shoot 
on the plates. And so just little like nuances like that growing up in an Asian household, it's just really meaningful to see in media. Representation for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders on screen has certainly gotten better since the racist roles we saw in the early days of television, or even since the tokenization we saw in the 90s and early 2000s. But things still aren't great. There was this report about TV that came out not long after Fresh Off the Boat premiered, and it found that Asian actors were still largely underrepresented. The report was literally called Tokens on the Small Screen. The study found that only 4% of TV series regulars were Asian or Pacific Islander. There were literally four, one, two, three, four, series regulars who identified as Pacific Islander. Asian actors were less likely to have leading roles, got less time on screen, and their characters were more often than white characters to have no familial or romantic relationships. And the Asian American characters we did see on TV were on just a few shows. In the years since this report, things have gotten somewhat better for racial diversity on television across the board. There are more roles for actors of color in both supporting and leading roles, and that means we're seeing more shows centered around Asian Americans. There's the spy thriller Killing Eve with Sandra Oh. ABC had a drama called Quantico that starred Priyanka Chopra. There's Elementary with Lucy Liu, and of course Bridgerton with all of its unrealistic diversity. And there are a lot of sitcoms too, like Aquafina is Nora from Queens, and of course Netflix's Never Have I Ever, which is a coming-of-age show about a teenage Indian-American girl named Davy. Incredible show. I've seen both of the two seasons that are out on Netflix, like, multiple times. As challenging as some of the storylines can be, I watch it to feel good. Davy, how was your first day at school? I'll be honest, it was mixed. I got all the classes I wanted, prime locker location. Ben Gross is still a dick. Are we allowed to say dick now? No one can say dick in this house. Why'd you let that Ben Gross rile you up so much? He's like five foot two. Damn, Mom, that was savage. Up top. Certainly, like, I'm like twice the age of the characters in this show, but just seeing that, it makes me feel like growing up that it was okay to be someone that tried to be, I guess, what would be labeled as an overachiever. It was normal and that there was more than what you saw on the outside, especially in relation to romantic dealings and all that kind of stuff. So I just absolutely love how that show really just delved into that, as well as the messiness of dealing with really challenging topics like grief, loss, but also empowering subjects, sexuality and exploring that and gender identity and all that as well. I think when we extrapolate that and take a look at the impact that that can have on culture and the way that we feel in telling our stories is that it gives others that license to be able to be that specific as well. With what it's like growing up in in a South Asian you know household, specifically, I love the juxtaposition between you know Davy growing up in America and her cousin Kamala growing up in India, but then now immigrating to the United States to pursue her education and career. Just showing that depth and breadth of those characters, really just seeing that reflected is so important. Even earlier today, I had a chat with someone who is from India and moved to Canada to pursue her career. And just knowing that she herself can see herself in these characters is so important. It really just opens up the conversation. And more than that, I think it really lends to building up the empathy, that compassion, and that really just that humanization of you know people that you would see in your everyday lives. So I think a show like Never Have I Ever has really been able to do that without necessarily giving into stereotypes or actually exploring like why certain stereotypes exist. And it's getting into the why and the historical context, the cultural context as to the origins of those kinds of narratives. 
Never Have I Ever does a great job of presenting a complex family dynamic that doesn't play into stereotypes. And that really stuck with Lakshmi. Even in Never Have I Ever, the mother-daughter relationship really seemed to evolve, which was nice because Asian American families are more than just academic pressure or perfectionism. So it's nice to get that well-rounded nuance. Another show that did that well, Master of None. I remember how touched so many viewers were after watching the parents episode of Master of None. That's the episode where Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang drew on their real-life father's childhoods in back in Asia and looked at how those experiences in their early lives made them the kind of dads that they were as adults. Another reason that we wanted to take you guys out was to learn more about you and how you got here. Dad, do you have any stories you care to share? I cannot think of anything noteworthy. Uh, come on, there's got to be something, right? Like, like, well, what did you do when you were growing up in Taiwan? I worked very hard. Well, what about you guys? What did you do when you were our age here in New York? I just worked and took care of you and your father. What about for fun? Pada, we didn't do anything for fun. You realize fun is a new thing, right? Fun is a luxury only your generation really has. And the discourse after that was just really, really touching. And people were sharing about their own immigrant dads, learning about their parents' early childhoods in the old country. And it was just really nice to see. For Natasha, it's important that identity and culture are part of the storylines and the personalities of the Asian characters we see on TV. And it's the reason why she thinks some of the more recent shows are resonating. I am based in Vancouver, Canada. So Kim's Convenience is a Canadian-based show, and I know that it's made its way across Netflix uh, in, the, in the United States as well, but that show is about a Korean-Canadian family based in Toronto. If you don't mingle, you stay single. These guys know that I'm the job. No, you should say thank you. You don't know yet, but Oma doing you a big favor. Oh. Huh. What's that happen? Oh, the usual. Oma's ruining my life. Ay, what are you doing? Helping find the boyfriend. Ay, Janet is not a baby anymore. Huh? She's a now full balloon grown woman. She don't need your help finding boyfriend. Yeah, thank you. How can she have a boyfriend when she take over a store? I'm not taking over the store. What's wrong with the store? And just seeing that specificity in the stories that they were able to tell and just showing the, once again, family dynamics, but also the breadth and depth of each character and as they go through all these struggles, but being able to communicate that in a comedic way, in a relatable way, I think that was just a really critical show and of course of course it's no longer in production but in really just advancing i think the way that we tell stories about asian american asian canadian families you can see people that look like this or have similar stories like this in your community with that too i think it's also about if we aren't being specific we're not doing justice to that story the richness of that story and even if people don't get it they can go ahead and learn about it portraying the specificity of the asian experience means also acknowledging the vast diversity among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Sharon again. In Kim's Convenience, I really like that they have other characters of different cultures as well. Obviously, the main story is behind the Korean-American family, but they have a lot of supporting characters. The Indian restaurant owner, there's another Chinese friend that Mr. Kim has. And I think it really shows the diversity of all these different cultures and the nuances. Characters who identify as Pacific Islander can sometimes get lost in these discussions. Of course, there's Young Rock, a show about the Rock's coming of age. The Rock, of course, is half Samoan. 
And Disney Plus has a show about a young Hawaiian doctor named Dr. Duki Kamiloha. Hello, Mr. Lim. I'm Dr. Nakayama, and this is Dr. Zeller. Hi, we're both residents. Dr. Kamealoha will be taking care of you. Aloha, Mr. Lim. Is this some kind of practical joke? She may be 16, but she is a doctor. <laughs> you know who she's like. Here we go. Remember Doogie Howser? That show from the 90s? So it's like a remake of Dr. Doogie Howser, but it's a young Pacific Islander who plays that young doctor role. And seeing the specificities of how she moves through life as an AAPI person, specifically in Hawaii, and seeing her mixed race family going through their day to day and the challenges that they have to go through. I think that's a, that's a prime example of how we're moving that needle in that aspect. And, and that being said, that's just, once again, one narrative, one you know fictional experience to tell stories of the Asian American Pacific Islander. The breadth and depth of stories is just so far and wide. And we're seeing more Asian representation on the silver screen, too. Turning Red was another Disney production. It's an animated movie about a Chinese-Canadian girl who turns into a red panda whenever she gets frustrated. The movie got great reviews, and it broke records for Disney+. And of course, we can't ignore the success of the movie Crazy Rich Asians a few years ago. It sparked a lot of conversations about the need for more stories that center Asian characters. It also proved to the studios that people were clamoring to see more of these stories on screen. The movie grossed $238 million, and it was one of the highest-earning romantic comedies of the 2010s. And now, there's another movie out that's continuing to prove that stories that center Asian Americans are resonating. I'm not your husband. I'm another version of I'm from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. There's no time to help you. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The movie stars Michelle Yeoh, and it's a story about family and trauma and healing. But it's also about interdimensional travel. Sharon Kwan again. I think for a lot of Asian families, a big barrier for seeking mental health and for really recognizing th these issues is that there's such a taboo on talking about the family. And we're all about keeping up appearances. And I think Everything Everywhere All at Once really did an amazing job of exploring all of these once very taboo topics and in such a beautiful and masterful way. And I think what made this movie different from other portrayals of Asian American families is that the characters felt real and multidimensional compared to usual like 2D stereotypes. It examined a pretty overused trope like the conflict and misunderstanding between first and second generation parents and their children. And I think transformed what seemed like a black and white issue into a colorful and multidimensional masterpiece. And I feel like the movie feels really intense and disorienting because that's how the characters feel because they're essentially living in survival mode. And mom is clearly suffering from anxiety and Daughter Joy is really battling depression. And she, the daughter, had to travel through multiple dimensions to finally get her mother to really listen to her and see her for the first time. And all the while, she wore an endless number of masks and costumes, which I saw as an allusion to the common Asian American coping mechanism of compartmentalizing yourself. And in the end, it's the father's emotional sensitivity, which is often regarded as taboo and not allowed in Asian families that finally breaks the cycle and ultimately gives this family a second chance. 
And with these conversations about diversity and representation in media, it can be easy to forget that it's not about representation for representation's sake. We don't want to see more Asian American characters and their experiences just because it's fair. It's also because these are powerful and affirming stories. And they inspire audiences to think beyond the stereotypes and tropes we're used to seeing on screen. It's so validating. It is so refreshing. I mean, I have been talking to so many of my clients about this movie, Everything Everywhere, because they're like, oh my God, I felt so seen. I cried, I laughed. I think what was great is it wasn't just a movie about Asians. I feel like the plot, the dimensions, all that could have been, it could have been any family. And it didn't feel like something that was created just to be like, oh, this is going to be another film about Asians. And so I think these creative storylines and these ways to tell these stories have definitely been changing and doing it in a fashion where it doesn't feel too much like tokenization, but more so just feeling that we do belong. Like our stories don't have to be specifically about just the stereotypical Asian American issues, but it can be about traveling to multi-dimensions and breaking all of these barriers and stereotypes. That's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with a creative and talented team every week to make the podcast. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Graylin Brashear is the senior director of audio for The Skin. Thanks to Natasha Jung, Sharon Kwan, and Lakshmi Gandhi for talking to me. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. <laughs>